Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior associate pastor, Dr. John Light. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 14. Continuing our study in this book, we've seen in recent weeks the sin of David with Bathsheba and the taking of Uriah through his murderous plot. We have seen Nathan the prophet confront David for his sin and David repent. And we've seen the slow but sure unfolding of the consequences in David's household of the of the profound sin that David carried out and the discipline of God with other sins unfolding. And we come this evening to look at chapter 14, which tells us how Absalom, David's, one of David's sons, comes to return to Jerusalem. But to do this and to understand the context a bit, we must set the scene by looking at the final verses of chapter 13. So we're going to read the last three verses of chapter 13, and then we're going to read chapter 14 in parts as I preach. Let's give attention to God's Word in chapter 13 at verse 37. Absalom by now has engineered the murder of Amnon, his brother, and now we read the Word of God. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, king of Geshur, and David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Reconciling relationships can be very difficult, especially in even family relationships. The backstory of this alienated relationship of David and his son Absalom is very messy. As I just alluded to, Absalom had murdered his half-brother Amnon after planning this murder for two years after Amnon had violated his sister Tamar. And part of the reason that Absalom carried out this murder of his brother was that King David had been passive in dealing with Amnon's crime. David had apparently simply looked the other way and avoided the issue of justice. He didn't do anything. So Absalom took justice into his own hands, which the Bible calls vengeance, and he carried out this dark plot to murder Amnon. That was the sermon last week. Then Absalom fled to Geshur. This is a smaller kingdom east of the Jordan, east of the Sea of Galilee. And we find that he is in self-imposed exile for three years. Now, his maternal grandfather was Talmai, so it would be a natural place for him to flee. His grandfather was the king of that land. And so he was taken care of there. And again, 
David does nothing. A lot of ink has been spilled over the last verse of chapter 13 where it says, And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom. A lot of commentaries write about the questionable translation here and the uncertainty of whether it should be translated this way or whether it was that David planned to go out against him or thought about going out against him militarily. There are different ways the verse could be translated. And the same goes with chapter 14, verse 1, about what the translation should be. But in any case, we see that David was doing nothing to solve this alienated relationship and the crime that had been done. He could have marched to Gesher and certainly been victorious and demanded that Absalom be returned for justice, but he did not do that. He didn't do anything with Amnon's crime. He didn't do anything with Absalom's crime. Are we seeing a pattern here? But isn't this often a typical pattern for family relationships as well? There can be love for a child or a family member, or this can happen in the body of Christ or in your place of business. Uh, There can be a wish for reconciliation, but issues of sin and justice or of ongoing bitterness or anger or the issues concerning confession and repentance or pride or all of the above, these get in the way of reconciliation and typically on both sides. And so these types of things often create a messy quagmire of non-reconciliation. And we know as well that the Bible says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, which implies that often you could be perfect and do everything in a biblical and scriptural way, but reconciliation is not something that can be achieved in this life. But clearly, David the king was very weak in his calling as a father and as a king. The king was called to administer justice with these sons And so we see the terrible brokenness that unfolds. And we would also note that this is not surprising in a culture of polygamy. David had multiple wives, which was clearly against God's moral law, and the consequences unfolded in that regard as well. And as we see the providential consequences of David's own sin in his sin against Bathsheba, and against Uriah. And we look at how God sovereignly brings his disciplines into David's life. We see this chapter really plans to reconcile father and son. And it's almost a jarring thing to look at this portion of the book of Second Samuel and see these various efforts and see the slow unfolding tragedy of David's household And it's pretty depressing to read about. So we have to remember there are the schemes of man and the sins of man, but then there are, above all of that, the wise and good purposes of God. It's a sad picture of life in this fallen world, and it should be a strong reminder to all of us in our relationships to always be working at biblical reconciliation, to take the log out of our own eye as Jesus commands us, to have a forgiving attitude to be quick to humble ourselves and search our own hearts, to be wise in when and how to confront. All of these things we could go into in great depth. 
But we want to look this, this evening at chapter 14 under three headings, three schemes, we might say, that did not solve the problem of alienation. First, there is Joab's scheme. We're going to see that in verses 1 to 20. A clever scheme of action. And then secondly, we'll see David's scheme. I guess you could call it a scheme. It's a passive scheme of avoidance. And then thirdly, we see Absalom's scheme in verses 25 to 33. I would call his scheme an ambitious scheme of treachery and betrayal against his father. But as we will see, the amazing truth of Scripture is that God was working out his purposes for good ultimately in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, even through the sinful schemes and the sinful actions of sinful human beings. Let's look then first at Joab's clever scheme of action. I want to read verses 1 to 3 as we begin to look at this. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. Now remember, or if you didn't know, Joab is one of David's foremost generals. Joab has been guilty of murder himself. Joab will be ultimately executed by Solomon when he reigns. And uh, Joab is David's nephew. But he knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. Again, there's a great translation question here. It could be translated that the king's heart was against Absalom. But in either translation, clearly there's a feeling in David's heart that he's torn. Why does... uh, And let me finish reading verses 2 and 3. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. Now, before we look in her words, let's just pause. Uh, Why does Joab concoct this plan to get David to bring back Absalom? We're not specifically told. It's not that Joab didn't have any self-interest in this. Uh, But it it, it wasn't evident. It, It was never evident in the text that Joab was somehow against David And for Absalom, in fact, by the time we get to chapter 18, Joab is going to kill Absalom as he hangs by his hair in the battle. No, as the story unfolds, Joab stands with David and against Absalom in the eventual rebellion of Absalom. Joab is for David, and he's for the kingdom to prosper and the unity of the kingdom to prosper. But Joab most likely saw this alienation of David from Absalom as a possible great disruption to David's kingdom. Amnon is dead. Amnon was the firstborn son, the crown prince, so to speak. Absalom is now evidently the crown prince in exile. So it does not do to have the king alienated from the crown prince. By the way, in chapter 3, we see that there was another son, Chiliab, son of Abigail, who is mentioned, who would have been the second born 
son, but most likely, most commentators take it that since he's never mentioned again, he has apparently died by this time. We see then that Joab is trying to solve a problem. His plan, get David to bring Absalom back to Jerusalem. Get them reconciled. Get them back together again. We need a unified kingdom and monarchy. But as the story unfolds, we see that that's easier said than done. At least, true reconciliation. And to carry out his scheme, Joab comes up with a plan And as we see his plan unfold, we notice that in some ways it's similar to the method that the prophet Nathan used in chapter 12 in confronting David. There are similarities, but not that similar. Nathan had spoken a story to David about a poor man with one sheep, and you can look back at that story, but that story turned out to be a parable, and Nathan could say to David, you are the man. He told the story, and it sounded like maybe it was a real story, but then it turned out it was a parable, and he confronted David with it, and it was very effective, and God used that. But Joab takes this right and, I would say, moral approach that Nathan used and turns it into really a deceitful and over-the-line scheme. He employs this woman from Tekoa. Tekoa was 10 miles away from Jerusalem. David must not have known her situation. Apparently, she was known for her wisdom or her counsel, her ability somehow to speak. And and Joab takes this right approach and puts words in this woman's mouth. And we want to see what she says here. And I'm going to read and comment about uh, about the rest of our text here in verses 4 to 20. Hear the word of God. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead, and your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant. And they say, give up the man who struck his brother that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. Sounds familiar, right? Sounds like it's Absalom and Amnon. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Now remember... This is a, make, a made-up story. This is not true. She's making this up. Joab has put these words in her mouth. Verse 8, Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. That's kind of a halfway answer. I'll take care of it. And that's not satisfactory to the ends that she and Joab have, the goal of her little speech to him. And so verse 9, And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, and my lord the king, and on my father's house. Let the king and his throne be guiltless. So she's obviously asking for more from the king. The king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. All right, now we're getting there somewhere, right? This is a, a more full promise to her. You know, I'll take care of it for sure. He shall never touch you again. Then she said, 
Please let the king invoke the Lord your God that the avenger of blood kill no more and my son be not destroyed. Now remember, this is just a story. She's making it all up. But she cites the Old Testament law about the avenger of blood. There was allowance in the Old Testament for justice to be carried out by the avenger of blood, a relative who could take justice into his hand and kill someone for his crime. And she's asking David to swear by the Lord that he will not let the avenger of blood do this. So she's pressing him on this. And David responds in the middle of verse 11, David said, he said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. So David takes an oath on the Lord's name. Then the woman said, so she's still not done. Please let your servant speak a word to my Lord, the king. He said, speak. And the woman said, now notice, I'm not going to read this yet. Let me just say this. She's going to turn this like Nathan did to be an exhortation to David about his situation. Here's where she does it. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself. Inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one, that's Absalom, home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life. He devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now, I have come to say this to my lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid, and your servant thought, I will speak to the king, and maybe that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my lord, the king, will set me at rest. For my lord, the king, is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord, your God, be with you. Wow, what a speech so far. In other words, she turns it to exhort David about his son and what he hasn't done. She implies somehow that this is against the people of God. She talks about death and being spilled out on the ground. And then she smoothly transitions back to her own case. Remember, a make-believe case and talks about that again and apologizes that she's had to come to the king essentially about this. And then she talks about the word of my Lord, David the king, will set her at rest. And then she flatters him that he's like the angel of God to discern good and evil. And then she prays that the Lord your God be with you. Wow, she was a wise woman. By the way, this is the longest conversation recorded in the book the books of First and Second Samuel. This woman's speech, it's the longest speech, so it's a significant speech. Well, by the end of the speech, David has seen through it. And we go on with the verse 18. Then the king answered the woman, do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, let my lord the king speak. This is irony here because at this point in the speech, the woman is giving David, the king, permission to speak. You, ha- you have to smile here. He's the king. He's the one who gives permission to speak. Now she's saying, let my lord, the king, speak. <laughs> Verse 19, the king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? 
Again, she's not going to give him a yes and a no, but she's going to be clear. The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant in order to change the course of things. Your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Wow. What a scheme. And just remember, Joab instructed her and helped her. It's not that she didn't use her own words and, and, you know, have freedom somewhat, but he knew how the conversation was going to go. And his scheme works. Ultimately, it's going to fall on his face, but it's it works. Note some of the characteristics of this conversation. Number one, it's deceitful. It goes way beyond Nathan's use of a parable to confront David. It's downright deceitful. It's manipulative. It's coercive. Uh, getting David to swear on oath, it's, uh, you know, it contains flattery. It clearly has goals to achieve an external outcome, you know, to get Absalom brought back, in a sense, to coerce David to do that, but it misses the heart of biblical wisdom. It's not truly godly or wise, it's only clever and powerful. This is just, this is just some of what we could say about Joab's attempt, Joab's scheme. And we want to make two applications as we think about what Joab was aiming for here. Number one, in our relationships, Beware of deceitful and manipulative behavior. Job saw a problem and he took action, but it was the wrong kind of action. It was a far cry from what Nathan did in getting to the heart of David's sin. Joab's scheming only made matters worse. His plan ends up setting the stage for the kingdom promised to David by God almost to be destroyed. Of course, God wouldn't let that take place. And so we must avoid deceitfulness and manipulation in our relationships. Ephesians 5.25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Colossians 3.9, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self. And lying includes, really, falsehood of all kinds, exaggeration, spinning the truth, all these kinds of things that we so easily do. So beware of deceitful and manipulative speaking. But secondly, realize that if we are going to try to resolve conflict in our families, in our workplace, in the body of Christ, with our friends, we must begin with our hearts. This is what Joab didn't see. He was trying to patch together an external way to solve this. We must begin with our own hearts by humbling ourselves before God and being willing to face our own sin and our own wrong attitudes. Joab's plan, his scheme, will fail. So we go to our second scheme, what I have called David's passive scheme of avoidance. Let's read verses 21 to 24. Then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I grant this. Go bring back the young man Absalom. Notice, David doesn't speak to the woman. He turns, either he brings Joab in or Joab standing in the recesses of the court there, and he says to Joab, okay, I grant this. Go bring back the young man. 
verse 22. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. And soon we're going to read that that situation stood for three years. David's scheme here that we see unfolding is not so much an active plan, but more a default response. David's avoidance has become his signature method of handling problems with his family, with his sons. Amnon's sin, Absalom's sin, David's response to both of these crimes, do nothing. But now he feels that his hand is forced. This woman has backed him in a corner, so to speak. And even though he knows that she is just a clever spokesperson for the counsel of Joab, David can't seem to get out of letting Absalom return. But he lets him return physically But he doesn't let him return, in a sense, emotionally. He never is going to see his son. And so the king does not let him into his presence. This is not what Joab had envisioned when he hatched this plan. This is not reconciliation. This does not promote the unity of the kingdom. In fact, this is going to end in disaster, in rebellion. We're going to see it like a slow-motion tragedy unfold. Here we have King David sitting in his house, feeling wrong, wronged and sinned against by Absalom. And we have Absalom sitting in his house, feeling the same way about his father. This is in the realm of speculation, but we might ask, what should David have done? What could he have done differently? Of course, this is a complex question because there were not just issues of reconciliation, but as we said, David is the king, and it was his duty to administer justice. Israel was a nation that was to be governed by God's written law, his word, his moral law. Probably Absalom should have been brought back and executed for murdering his brother. Or maybe David should have made the banishment official. Remember how Cain was banished for murdering his brother. Justice would have required some level of punishment at least. Of course, I'm sure that it was hard for David to administer justice in the case of Absalom since it was the very absence of justice from David in the case of Amnon that led to Absalom taking matters into his own hands and murdering Amnon in vengeance. Oh, what tangled webs we weave, we, we could say. And then there was the matter of forgiveness and reconciliation between father and son. If David was going to essentially pardon Absalom, which is basically what he did outwardly in bringing him back to Jerusalem, then he should have initiated a restored relationship with his son. Instead, their alienation led to deeper tragedy. What can we say on this point about avoidance? I would make two points. Avoidance is not the same as overlooking sin in love. 
In that sense, it is appropriate many times and commonly many minor low-level types of sin can and should be overlooked in love in our relationships. 1 Peter 4.8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. I don't believe that Jesus rebuked the 12 apostles every time they sinned when they were living with him all three years. And, you know, I'm sure that he just selectively decided when to confront them about a particular sin. I'm sure he overlooked lots of sin in love. But there is a time to face sin and to seek to deal with it. There are appropriate times of wisely confronting sin. And so even in the church, there are times to exercise church discipline. But secondly, we must guard our hearts against unforgiveness. David, in his avoidance, is a negative example for us when he let Absalom return and he refused to let Absalom see his face. Either he should have administered justice or he should have reconciled to his son. He shut Absalom out of his life. And we don't know how dark Absalom's heart had become at this point in terms of his ambitions and plans for rebellion, as we'll see unfold. And we don't know exactly what was going on in David's heart, but I'm sure for most of us, most of the time, whether or not there can be relational reconciliation, listen to me here about this, whether or not there can be relational reconciliation, whether or not the other person is repentant and asks forgiveness, you and I almost always need to work on our own hearts before God. We must seek God for a heart of genuine humility before Christ and looking to Him and asking for His love and seeking a heart of forgiveness. And that comes only by the power of Jesus Christ and the gospel in our lives. I think David in this time, in this part, even though he was a man after God's own heart, he's a negative example for us, warning us in these areas of our own lives. Well, finally, let's look at Absalom's scheme in verses 25 to 33. I've called it Absalom's ambitious scheme of treachery and betrayal. Look how this section starts in verses 25 to 27, where the narrator gives us an inspired look at the character of this man who will betray and treacherously seek to overthrow his father. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it when it was heavy on him, he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman." What picture do we see here? Well, it's almost humorous in the way it's stated, isn't it? Think vanity. Think focused on his outward appearance. Here's a man enamored with himself so much that when he cuts his hair at the end of every year, he goes to the trouble to weigh it and to calculate the weight and to tell everyone it's about five and a half pounds of hair. This is the very same head of hair that's going to cause him to be put to death when it gets all tangled in the trees in the battle scene. And it also reminds us of Samson and his hair. And we know that Samson was far from a perfect judge. He had many areas of sin. And 
in verse 25, when it talks about him being handsome and in this extravagant way, the narrator says, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. It has to harken back to King Saul. Remember, King Saul was described as someone who was a head taller than everyone else and was handsome. And we all know what happened with Saul and what a terrible king he was. So verse 26 brings to mind Samson, uh, verse 25, King Saul, and verse 27 brings to mind a picture-perfect politician with three sons and a beautiful daughter. You know, if he were a politician sending out campaign folders right now, the family would look really good, wouldn't they? And we'll find that in the next chapter, he steals the people's heart from David. Everyone would ooh and ah over him. But notice, all of these are externals. There is no mention of a heart for God. No, instead, Absalom has a heart for getting what he wants. And now look at verses 28 and to the end of the text where we see how Absalom gets what he wants. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have, you, why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you, come here, that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Gesher? It would be better for me to be there still. Now therefore let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he, that is the king, summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. This is how Absalom gets his way. If Joab doesn't return your calls or your texts, have his barley field set on fire. That got Joab's attention fast. What a mess. Do you see the mess that David's family and household are in? For two full years, Absalom's self-seeking was fueled by his sense of outrage that he had been brought back to the capital only to be snubbed and rejected by his father. It's like a darkly different ending to the story of the prodigal son here. In this ending, the prodigal is not repentant and the father is not forgiving. And even in the final scene, these last verses of chapter 14, where David is somehow convinced that he has to receive Absalom, it is all very staged, isn't it, in its brevity as it's stated here. There is a kiss, but there is no real reconciliation Each still sees the guilt of the other. It is all play-acting, it seems, with the meeting dripping with coldness and unforgiveness. And by the next chapter, Absalom's dark heart will overflow in rebellion. Not a happy ending to the story, and it's going to get worse. But the happy ending of the narrative of 1 and 2 Samuel and of the entire Old Testament Davidic kingdom is not David himself. The hope and the happy ending is found in David's greater son, Jesus Christ. Amazing, isn't it?
that in all the brokenness and sin of David and his human descendants, there is only one who is the Savior, the one to whom all the prophecies point, the one who is fully man but also fully God. And so Jesus untangles the mess of each one of our lives by laying down his life on the cross for our sins and our foolishness. And then by the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, Jesus enables his people to begin to live lives of peace and holiness and increased reconciliation with one another, lives that begin to actually reflect the grace and the love of Jesus Christ our Lord, so that even our relationships to begin to be transformed. What good news. No, they're not completely transformed in this life. We still see much brokenness in all of our families and extended families and in our relationships and in the church and in missions work and in government. But still, for those who belong to Christ, changed more and more by the love of Jesus Christ and for the glory of of Jesus Christ. The sad saga of David and Absalom points us to the only solution to the broken relationships of this world and to the brokenness of our own sinful hearts. And the solution is the gospel of the greater David. Have you come to him? Is your life a mess? Maybe it's outwardly together, but you know inwardly you need Jesus Christ. And Jesus gives new life and strength and a humble and wise spirit as we grow in him that we begin to even see restoration in the broken relationships of this life. And so I exhort you, look to Jesus Christ. If you've already trusted him and walked with him for years, look to him for the right attitude in your own heart in the situations in which he's put you this week. And look to his word for wisdom in reconciling and restoring and loving others in your life. Let us pray. Father, thank you. We know that your word instructs us, and in some ways it it instructs us in a negative way in places like this. So Lord, help us to look at this and seek to be different in our relationships, Lord. Help us to know we need your help every day. We ask that you would be glorified through us. In Jesus' name, amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.